everybody. Well, we have a special opportunity this morning to have the Word of God come from the people of God this morning, particularly these three women. Say hello to Kim Liu. You haven't even done anything yet, Kim. You're getting applause. Um, Fatima Torres. And Marie Wood. Wait till you hear them, then you're going to really applaud. Uh, we've been in New Life, we've been in a series called Eastertide, which is celebrating the resurrection the 50 days after Easter. You know, we know about fasting before Easter and Lent, but Easter doesn't end on Sunday. Um, and so we're continuing to feast on the resurrection stories of New Life. We've been hearing from Pete and uh, Rich, and so we are uh, going to actually flesh out some of those resurrection stories through these women this morning. So let's pray and then we'll continue, okay? <clears throat> so Father, thank you so much for the, um, you come to us and you keep coming to us. You're always coming to us. And may we be aware this morning, Lord, of how you are coming to us uh, where the stories of these women intersect with our own stories for you to bring your life and love. You so desire to bring your life and your love to us. I ask that each of us would open up our hearts and allow God in and to come in and through uh, and by his spirit this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. <clears throat> amen. So we're going to start with Kim. And uh, <clears throat> what I'll do is I'm going to give the background of the story of each of these women, and, and then I'll ask some, some questions, and they will uh, bring forth their, their, res their stories of really of resurrection. And so, Kim, <clears throat> I like to say that you had, as I think about your story, you've had a lot of angels throughout your life. As you yes, look, I do. Yeah, as you look back yeah. over it. Um, and so actually the first angel was your adoptive mother. Kim was born with a birth defect, uh, and so her biological parents did not want her, and, uh, but she was welcomed into a very loving home, particularly your mother and your brothers. Yes. And you, throughout your, you know, it was difficult. It was a, a cleft palate, so there was a real distortion there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, but your, your adoptive mother would tell you throughout childhood, no matter what anyone tells you, you're loved and you're beautiful. Yes, she does that all the time. They assure me because every time when I'm out, or even my own aunties or uncle, they would tell me, you're such an ugly kid. When you grow up, you make sure that you honor your mom because she loves you so much and you are nobody's child, but she took you in. And so you were able to stay in touch with biological siblings. And not long ago, your birth sister had said to you, you were very blessed to be adopted and raised by different parents because our parents never touched us or said, I love you. So that was one angel. Oh, yes. She's definitely at, an angel. And then at seven, your brother, who might be another angel, um, actually two things happened significant at seven. You had surgery to correct 
the cleft Correct. palate. Yeah. And you went to a VBS, and from a Buddhist home, you became a Christian. Yeah, when I, uh, when I was seven years old, my second brother, whom I'm closest to, uh, he brought me to VBS, and that's where I came to know Christ. So um, now fast forward, your family moves from Singapore to the U.S. and as a, as a teenager. Yes. And then you stay in touch with a childhood friend named Vincent. And so 10 years later, after coming to the States, you actually end up marrying Vincent. Yes. On February 14, 1992. Now, she, uh, she knew when she married Vincent that he had diabetes. And so uh, the first five years, the diabetes progressively got worse, which then affected the kidneys because they could not afford the medication for those kidneys. So the second half, the, the next five years, he was on dialysis twice a week. No, three times, three a, times week, a week. Three to four hours, always going for a dialysis. And then a kidney transplant donor became available. And on their 10th, right around the 10th wedding anniversary, uh, joy soared, hope soared because he got the transplant. Uh, and then a month later, they found out that that kidney had cancer. And it wasn't short, shortly thereafter, Vincent passed away. Um, I'd like for you to share your conversation with Vincent Shirley before he died. Um, yeah, uh, well, the, we married, uh, on our 10th anniversary, we have the, our big celebration. Uh, we've married on Valentine's Day. And uh, we, we had our last big celebration with a group of friends. And I didn't know that was the last one. But anyway, uh, Vincent has his transplant. And uh, a month after the transplant, we found out that he has cancer. And it's not a normal cancer. It's a cancer that no man should have. He has uterine cancer because the donor is a woman who has uterine cancer. So, what were his, what was that final, one of those final conversations you had with him? Uh, before he went into the coma, he knows that I'm very angry with God. Uh, I, I want nothing to do with God. I'm so angry with God. I curse God. I, I just couldn't believe that there's a God out there that would do such a thing to me. Well, before Vincent went into coma, he, he told me to promise him one thing. One thing is, do not be angry with God, for he knows what he's doing. And God never made mistake. And uh, the last thing he said is, I want you to continue to go to church. Please promise me that. And I did. And, so you, and you did. For the next five years, you for went to church, time. but it's really just going through the motions. Yeah, I go to church for the sake of going. I don't pay attention. I just go because my husband wants me to go. Yeah. And so you really, you, for you had grief for five years. You felt mocked by God. And um, so fast forward a few years later, actually during the next several couple of years, you also lose your mother and your brother. So basically her, losing her whole family, a large portion of her family. Yes. So of course the grief, the loss, the anger towards God increasing. Uh, you move into a new apartment building and you, you meet who we call the nosy neighbor. Yes. Okay. The nosy neighbor, the nosy neighbor was in first service. And 
the, the nosy neighbor is a member, there she is, Linda Wang, a member here at New Life, and she gets talking to Kim, hears a little bit of her story, and encourages Kim to come to New Life and also signs her up for the EHS course. She didn't know that, but she, Kim, <laughs> that's why Kim calls the nosy neighbor. So she, Kim makes her way. She doesn't want to come. She makes her way to this church, makes her way to the course, finds out she's already signed up for the course, and all she says to herself, nosy neighbor. And so, but now share what happens in that emotionally healthy spirituality course. You meet God on a whole new level. Um, it was a transformation. There was one chapter in the, the course that said that uh, before Jesus was on the cross, he was at the, the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, he was weeping. When I came across that verse, for the first time, I had goosebumps, and I felt it. I felt like I, there's a knife that stepped into me. I went home that night, and I whipped and I whipped and I whipped. Oh, the reason I whipped is because I feel so, God is so alive, is so real. In my many walk of my Christian life, I never knew that. I always, I always procreate, I always think of God as somebody who is very strong, uh, who is strong, who is mighty, who doesn't feel how I feel. But that cause changed my life. Went home that night, I will because I feel that Christ is like me. He feel what I went through. And I whip and it felt so good for the first time to be able to whip and know that God is so real. Well, you did not even shed tears at Vincent's death because? Well, I did not shed any tears at Vincent's death nor my mother's death because I feel that crying is a, is a sign of weakness. And if I cry, that means I'm submitting myself to being weak. I'm allowing myself to be weak. And that's not, so not true after I learned from EHS course. How do you describe the way you used to pray and how you pray now? Well, in the past when I pray, <laughs> I'll pray for others. I'll pray for things. I'll pray for God to do this and that. But now, it's different. When I pray, I ask God to come and have fellowship with me. Do, I even ask God, what can I do for you today? You'll be surprised when he answer. <laughs> so I got ready for that. <laughs> yeah. People have said to you, Kim, don't you get angry when you see other couples in the park? Oh, actually... Yeah, that's a very interesting question because a lot of uh, my single friends actually come to me and ask me, you've been a widow for more than 10 years, don't you feel lonely, especially in the summer where you see people at the park doing things together? Uh, that loneliness never occurred to me because I have Jesus and he's so alive. He is my groom. Who else do I need? <clears throat> So God has given you himself as your groom. Yes. And he's also given you a new family. Yes. Uh, and that's my nosy neighbor and, his, and her family. <laughs> and, and so, Kim, why don't you go ahead and read your verse that really sums up your journey? 
Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Fatima, you, um, you actually became a Christian in high school through a, a teacher there, and then, but at 18, you came to the United States to start college, and you started attending a church. You fell in love with your Sunday school teacher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> God, have mercy. Yeah, yes, yes. That's not the end of the story. Her Sunday, her Sunday school teacher was two years older than her. She was 20. He was 22. But eight months later, uh, he would begin physical abuse. So she is a survivor, and you're going to hear what she has survived, not only uh, the, the physical and emotional scars of domestic abuse, um, but uh, I, I like to kind of think of your story in turning points. Um, so the first really turning point that I want to kind of direct our attention to is when you told your husband to leave. Watched the movie, Tina Turner, okay? And <laughs> Tina Turner says to the judge who's warning her, you're going to lose everything if you divorce Ike. You're going to lose everything. And Tina says, I may lose everything, but I'll have my, have my dignity. dignity. And God came to Fatima through that. She had the courage to tell her husband to leave. Um, that's f- after five years of weekly abuse, of, of weekly being told, how to walk, what to eat, what to wear, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then you divorced him at, um, legally a couple years later, and at the same time you divorced God. Yes. And although you left the physical prison of abuse, there was still a lot of fear of judgment and judgment of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and until the next turning point, which was 9-11, Fatima worked right across the street from where the towers fell. So she was literally in what you're viewing up here. And as a result of that, she had um, disability for seven months. So she had seven months because of the injuries Mm -hmm. and burns, et cetera, had disability for seven months. And uh, this we call the turning point, it's not my fault, because she now had a time to think about uh, things. She had been a single mother for so many years, driving so hard to keep food on the table for her two boys, Mm -hmm. that now she got off that treadmill in this seven-month disability. She had time, you had time to think. And as you thought about your life, you realized, you reflected on your childhood. And during this time, your sons, actually one of your sons, then a teen, Here's her beautiful sons. By the way, they're single. I have application upstairs. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But when they were teens, they actually were instrumental in bringing her back to God. And so she began to search the scriptures anew with a new lens and began to see your self-worth and your value in the scripture. The problem is every time you would share it with people and in churches, she still kept getting the response, yeah, but you must have done something mm-hmm. to get that mm-hmm. um, reaction from your spouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also, this was also a time of reflection of where you left the corporate world to go into the nonprofit world mm-hmm. because you now were saying, I want to 
advocate for women that have been in this prison that I've been in. Mm -hmm. The only thing is, the next 14 years, you were advocating for women. Mm -hmm. um, and you describe it as the prison door really opened with this, this revelation that, wow, it's really not my fault. But there was, although the door had opened, you still didn't have the courage to walk out the door. There was still a prison inside of you. And um, so really for 14 years, you're advocating for women and you want to help and protect women that are in danger of sexual assault or domestic violence, but you're still not sharing your story. Mm -hmm. You're not revealing that you were a victim. Mm -hmm. So uh, that brings us up to the next turning point, which is the Emotionally Healthy Relationship Course. Mm -hmm. And so, um, although you had become a Christian at 15, mm -hmm. you have what you have learned in new life in a year you said you would not have had to suffer so much trauma. And it began really, in a sense, well, not began that night, really since you started coming to New Life, but that night was instrumental mm -hmm. because that night something happened. Tell us what happened that you were able to finally walk out of the prison. Yes. So um, for 14 years after um, I divorced, um, you know, all those years prior, even my divorce, um, it was very troubling for me, emotionally speaking. And it was like each day I felt that I was getting into a darker and a darker and a darker place. Because I'm not only married my Sunday school teacher, but when I was seven months pregnant, we were ordained youth pastor. So it was a lot of weight on my shoulder to keep faking that I was in this Christian holy marriage because to me, I didn't want the responsibility that if someone at church found out and they walked away from the Lord because of that, I didn't want that on my shoulder. So it was all that plus, you know, my family background. So it comes 9-11. I am in this seven months, you know, on disability. And it was like, it was actually the first time that I realized that I am indeed divorced. You know, I was still in this mental legalistic mind that unless I knew that my ex-husband was unfaithful, I shouldn't divorce him. Right. And at that so, time, I didn't know that he also was unfaithful. Right. So domestic abuse was not enough for you no, to no, divorce No, no, no at that time. It had to literally be adultery. Yes. Just because I wanted the weight out of my shoulder, I wanted them people to say, oh, no, but he did something, and, you know, now we see it. So... Um, the, uh, after 9-11, uh, uh, I came back to the office, to the corporate sector. Um, I had a regional position at um, Guardian Life Insurance. And a month later, I resigned because I felt I was not giving back to the community. And I was just getting emerged into just making money and having a big office and staff and all that stuff. And it was then that I started, you know, helping women. But as you said, I didn't disclose my experience. So um, long story short, every place I went, and I was trying to find this confirmation that the way that I was interpreting the word of God was indeed true. Wherever I went, it was like, oh, no, but it doesn't mean that. You are misinterpreting. Uh, and it was like I felt that I was then now at fault, that I was not Christian enough to interpret what the Lord was telling me. Right. 
So people would tell you pray more, fast yes, more. Yes, yes, uh, and um, you know they were saying so many things that now that I am where I am, spiritually speaking and emotionally speaking, it was like, oh my God, I have to fast for these people. So <laughs> it is true. So anyway, um, I was uh, last year, uh, actually 2014. I knew that I had to leave the place of fellowship where I was. So uh, I started searching for uh, churches, and I passed by No Life Fellowship in one of the public uh, buses. And I live and I work in Manhattan. So I saw the sign, and uh, I thought that it was a no-age church. Uh, but uh, when I came home, the first thing that the Lord puts in my heart was the name of the church, No Life Fellowship. And that same night, I went to the church uh, website. I read every single page. I printed the list of the books. I saw what I had in my shelf, if I had to buy no one. And I started, at that time, my church service was at 5 o'clock uh, in the evening. So I would go to my service, but by Tuesday, I was hungry to find that one No Life had to say. Um, I followed the church for seven months. I came to church for the first time, and I, I felt home. I remember walking through that door, and the first thing that I was looking was for the cross. Because to me, he spoke to me on the website, the fact that it was an empty cross. And I remember saying, there you are. So, um, you know, when Pastor Rich was closing the service and asking for us to open our hands, I, I know I was home. I was home. I share with you that I believe strongly that when the Lord put No Life Fellowship in Pastor Pete's heart, he was thinking about me. Because this, this is home for me. So, so tell us about the night of the genogram, the genogram yes. your family in the EHS relationship. So I, long story short, I registered into the EHS because, you know, I heard that it's one of our core um, uh, courses. So I wanted to, you know, be part of the community. So I enrolled into the class and I was very happy. You know, the first, the temperature reading, I was like, oh, I got that. And the second class came the third class, the genogram. And oh my Lord. Genogram is when you draw out and look at like three generations of your family. Yes. And to me, it was a foreign a word. I didn't know what genogram meant. Um, I didn't want to take my phone to Google it anyway. So, but Pastor P put his genogram. Right. And I immediately, in that second, I felt I was in an unsafe place. Unsafe. Because I look at the table and I saw that they were an empty shard. So I put two and two together and I knew that part of the activity was that I had to complete my own genogram. Right, so. And um, I left the room crying. I put my jacket on my mouth, and I, I was literally screaming. I was shaking from my head to my toes because I was, that class was taking me to a place that even for the 14 years that I thought I was free, I didn't want to walk into and it was that I really thought that it was my fault, everything that happened. I felt ashamed. But not only that, I also felt that it was my fault how dysfunctional my family was, actually is. So, um, you know, I went through, when I was outside, I had two options in my mind. Come in, take my things, leave the class, never come back to church. Or come in, finish the class that night only, take my stuff, leave, and never come back to church. 
So there were no other options of staying. <laughs> well, I came back. I finished the, the class that night. But as I was putting each line, it was literally was the first time that I was getting the courage to remove that open lock and leave my jail, leave my cell. Because it was the first time in my life that I realized that not even the dysfunctionality of my family was my fault. That me being a victim of domestic violence was not my fault. It was just revelation, like in a way that, oh my God, it's just amazing. And I felt that as I finished the genogram, the Lord was rearranging the furniture of my soul. And it was the first time that I truly experienced freedom. And I remembered um, holding the knob of the door as I was leaving that night. It was like 9.40 something in the night. And the Lord telling me, you are indeed free. And I actually started, I, I leave, since I live in my hand and I have to take a train, and as I was walking from the church to the train station, I was saying out loud, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, because that's, that's exactly how I felt. Right, it was an amazing, yes, an, yes. An amazing encounter. Oh, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. yes, yes, yes. And um, these are two very meaningful verses. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. And share Psalm 139. Yeah, thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. And work, your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. And it's just coming to that understanding that I am so comfortable in my own skin, that I am a complex woman. Believe me, I am complex. And that I embrace that. I embrace my mess, that I'm a mess in progress, and that I know that I can overcome all that with the Lord. And it's through the EHS that I have learned that. Um, and, you know, there may be um, folks here today that are in, involved with domestic abuse, and we want you to know that love is patient doesn't mean that you have to stay in that abuse. Mm -hmm. So if you're in abuse today, we have prayer teams at the end of this service. Mm -hmm. You can please come forward and talk to them or talk to Fatima after the service. Mm -hmm. um, but Fatima, what would you say to someone or those of us who do feel in a prison of shame and are afraid to walk out or can't make sense of it? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, you know, when we are in that situation, uh, the first thing that we do is to blame ourselves and believe all the lies that people tell us. And that actually what makes us more prisoner than free, after all. And um, our situation, our journey is not a surprise to the Lord. It's not like we go into this ashamed mode and the Lord say, oh my gosh, she's feel ashamed. What do I do now? When he was creating us, when he was wiring us, he was actually equipping us to also overcome all those situations. We just have, as Isaiah 41.10 says, we just have to believe that he's holding us on his victorious right hand. And then we will be able to overcome any challenges. Amen. Okay, and finally, this is um, a ministry that Fatima leads called Wear Your Crown. Again, reaching out to advocate for women of sexual assault and victims of domestic abuse. Yes. Okay, so yes. thank you. Thank you. Is David here?
Yes, okay. David is up. Where is David? Where is, where is the, okay, so here, this is the, um, this is the Wood family. There's the, David, just stand for a moment. There's the handsome father up there. <laughs> and uh, they have four beautiful boys. Uh, a few weeks ago, in the context of Rich's preaching, he brought out the interaction between Christ and Peter. And when, when Christ says to Peter, I'm going to send you where you don't want to go. And in my conversation with Marie, she said to me, boy, do I know what that feels like. And so, uh, Marie, uh, you and I talked about there's this kind of expectation amongst expectant parents. You know, when they're expecting a baby, um, they're kind of thinking, feeling, it doesn't matter if it's a boy or a girl, as long as it's healthy. And uh, you had a very different experience. You had two boys... Uh, actually, uh, the four boys' names are Lucian, Blaze, Reed, and Paley, all named after ph philosophers. Um, but her two youngest boys were born with a very rare disorder called uh, myotubular myopathy. You say it. Myotubular myopathy. Okay. It's really, it's rare, about 100 babies in the United States. And... Uh, two are in their family. They're born with extremely weak muscles. They can't walk, um, and they can't talk. You need muscles to eat. You need muscles to swallow. You need muscles to breathe. And so they're, um, most of the time, the babies struggle with sucking, swallowing, breathing on their own, etc. All the basic tasks that you and I take for granted, the way we use our muscles. General brain development and intelligence is not affected by MTM, nor is their heart, because the heart is a different muscle. Um, so there's um, Paley and Reed, and uh, those cheeks are yours. <laughs> Paley has your cheeks. But I love these pictures. You can, this one's a little bit more different, because the boys are holding hands. The two youngest ones who need 24-hour around-the-clock care and life support um, are always you know, a lot of times they're touching and they sleep holding hands. Paley uh, is laying down there. Reed is next to him, and he's on his little computer or piano or something there. iPad. Oh, he's on his iPad? Okay. It's a piano app. And I love this picture because here they are horsing around with their brothers. This is one of those rare going out to the parks because you live in a third-floor walk-up. Yes. And to leave... <laughs> To leave the apartment, I, I wrote this actually down, means 30 minutes to carry down from our third floor apartment and secure the van into two wheelchairs, two ventilators, two emergency bags, two suction machines, two meters that read the heart rate, spare oxygen tank, the boys, etc. So, um, but uh, I, I have this picture. There's um, Blaze on the far right. And he, they have, all the brother, brothers love each other and share what Blaze shared a couple of weeks ago when he came home from school. Yeah, so they all have a very special bond. And uh, the older brothers are very protective over the younger ones. And uh, the other day, Blaze was uh, nestled up with Paley on the couch. And he said, Mom, you know how there are people who try to buy happiness? And I said, yeah, I guess there are people who try to buy happiness. And he said they should just come and be with Paley because he's free happiness. 
So um, here's, uh, here's Paley laying down base, and that's pretty much, you know, his day and his spot for the day. Uh, just share a little bit about kind of the equipment that is, he's using. Uh, so uh, attached to his tracheostomy, which is in the neck, you can see there's a circuit, um, and it leads up to the ventilator machine. The ventilator also has a humidifier. Um, and then there's a pulse oximeter, which is a little bit hard to see. It's sort of behind him next to Mickey Mouse, but it gives the reading of his heart rate and the blood oxygen saturation. There's a suction machine because, you know, they can't swallow, so um, saliva builds up in the mouth and in the trachea, and we have to constantly clear it because there's always a risk of uh, aspiration and pneumonia just from getting a common cold. And, uh, and then there's also a feeding pump, and in the back you can kind of see the green chair that's part of the wheelchair. So you... Um here, here's a passage that means a lot to you. And I'm just going to read the first part. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Why is this meaningful to you? There are several passages in Scripture that I would say just um, have uh, been planted in my soul. It's mm, a good way of saying it. <laughs> and this, I would say, was one of the lifelines that came to me in the early days after Reed was born. Um, because people would ask you, are you okay? Or how are things? Are you okay? And, you know, I couldn't really say, well, I'm fine. <laughs> Uh, things are great. I couldn't say that, but I could say, I'm afflicted every, in every way, but I'm not crushed. I could say that. And um, and it's, it's because the, the truth of God and the light and his love just really was, has been um, my guidance and strength through all of this. And um, what I love about this passage is that is that it talks about how we carry the truth um, of the death of Jesus in our bodies so that the life of Jesus can be manifested in us. And so, you know, our, our culture talks a lot about quality of life. What is quality of life? How has God sort of redefined that for you according to the kingdom of God and not necessarily American culture? Yeah, so... Um, in so many ways, children are seen as kind of accessories to life or, you know, something that is an adornment or um, something that should be convenient and defined by what you want, uh, but what you want. And, um, but truly, when you have a child, you become completely vulnerable and you realize that you have no control and that there are no guarantees. And... Um, when it comes to, to quality of life, people think of, you know, being able to just be healthy, but they also think of uh, other things. And for us, uh, it's just so different because uh, we don't have the, the kind of thing you take for granted, which is health. And, um, but a promise that I made to my children when we were kind of being influenced to euthanize, read, 
and uh, you know they use the code language. Let's just make them comfortable and give them some morphine, which if you do to a child on a ventilator, obviously they're gonna stop breathing at one point. And I said, well, I don't know how long they're gonna live. And they're like, well, you know, 80% are dead by the first year and the rest will die by age two. And I said, okay, that's what you're saying. I don't hear that from God, but um, I don't know how long that we'll be blessed to have them in our lives. But however long that is, we will do everything we can to make it as meaningful and joyful and as full of love as possible. And when I got pregnant with Paley, um, the geneticist was also making some insinuations about the possibility of him having myotubular myopathy. And I said, well, we know he's a boy, so we know he has a 50% chance of having myotubular myopathy. But he has a 100% chance of being loved. Amen. When I asked her to send me a, 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 a schedule of her normal day. Holy smokes. You know, it begins at 5.45 with a night, well, 5.45, she'll, she'll wake up and have some uh, 10 minutes of just silence and contemplation, and then the night nurse knocks on the door to give her her night report, and she signs off and she leaves. But, I mean, just think about it, having a stranger or whatever, you know, someone other than your family knocking on your bedroom door every morning, and there's really little privacy with tutors and teachers and therapists that are in and out of the house, you know, throughout the day. But um, I, I want, please share how the boys have enriched your life and what is so amazing about them. I always get overwhelmed when I get asked this question because there are so many ways that, that I feel enriched by them to the point where I almost feel ashamed that, that I'm so blessed while they have their struggles. And in that sense, they are like Christ to me. And, um, but one of the great things I would say is just this, this deep restoration of awe and wonder. When, when Reed was born, when they were both born, they spent a lot of time in the hospital. Um, and when Reed had his tracheostomy and he was stable enough, they told me that I could take him for a walk around the hospital grounds. And I took him outside, and we're walking, and it was a spring day, and uh, the wind uh, was lightly blowing. And as it blew, it rustled the leaves of the trees. And Reed's eyes look, opened so wide, and his mouth dropped, and... Um, and he took in this deep breath, you know, my little child who has difficulty breathing, but he took in a deep breath. And, and when I looked at him, I myself felt a reawakening of the awe and wonder that he had. And, um, but they do this to me all the time, and I think about all their struggles, and I think about that it takes 52 muscle pairs to even swallow. And suddenly I become conscious of... In, in deep ways of the, the design of, of creation and, and what that says about our creator. And I begin to see him in so many ways, and, and the Lord comes at me through the creation and through people and through experiences, and sometimes it's so rapidly that I almost can't bear it because it's so beautiful. Amen. Wow, wow. 
Um, sometime, I, and I love that you um, are able to, uh, you understand their disorder as, they're not disabled, they're differently abled, right? They're differently abled. And Marie, sometimes uh, folks like ourselves are, feel awkward. We don't know what to do when we're in the company of differently abled people. And so how, can, how, would you, how, how would you encourage us to engage? We, let's say we see a family like yours, um, two boys in a wheelchair, hooked up to all sorts of life monitors. Um, how, encourage us how to engage with a family like yours if we see you at the park. I think sometimes people want to be sensitive. And uh, you know they don't want to stare, or they're worried about their children staring. But then when they say something like, "Oh, don't don't look at them," or you know something like that, I feel more isolated. I, I actually don't mind the stares. I know that it's different. People aren't used to seeing things like that. And you know, you can just smile. You, I, I'm, I welcome questions. And most of the families that I know in the community affected by the disease, they they welcome questions. Some of them even hand out little cards that go to the website and. Um, so don't be afraid to say hello and to smile and to talk to them and, um, you know. Okay. And now in closing, thank you. That's very helpful. In closing, what would you like for us to take from your journey and how God has come to you in this journey, um, along with encouraging those of us who are in really challenging situations right now, and are exhausted from them. Um, I remember when I was about nine years old, I tried to think of the worst possible thing that could happen. And I played this little thought experiment. And I was thinking and thinking, I said, well, I think if the, the worst thing that could possibly happen to me were if something bad were to happen to my future children that I'm going to have someday, maybe. And, uh, but I've experienced the worst thing that I could possibly imagine. I have looked into my most precious people, my children. I've looked in their eyes and seen the light of life leave. And in other words, they, they have died. died. They have and died. You brought them back. Yes, they have died before my eyes. And I tell people that I live on the borderland of life and death. There is no security in that. But there is security in knowing that the Lord is with me. And that's a promise that he gave me when Reed was born and um, I was laying there in the hospital wondering what was happening. And he gave me the image of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael in the fire. And he said, just as I was with them in the fire, I will be with you and you will not be destroyed. And the voice of God that I hear all the time through all these circumstances is that there is no dark place where the love of God will not find you. And if you look for him, and if you seek for him with all your heart, you will see him. And the beauty and the purpose and the meaning in all that's happening around you, whatever that is, he's faithful and, and he's good. You can trust him. Amen. Amen. So ladies, um, in behalf of our community this morning, we want to say thank you so much for letting Christ, for opening up the doors of your heart and letting Christ come and bring life 
and love to you and you bringing that light and love to the world. Actually, let's all just remain standing together. Um, wow. We heard the story of a, a young widow, a victim of domestic and survivor of domestic abuse, and a mom with um, four or two differently abled children. And I don't know about you, this, this is the second time I've heard this, and I'm so glad I get to hear it one more time, next service. As, as I'm sitting there, um, I realize a couple of things, that we, we are standing on holy ground. And as I'm listening to them, I could feel just a sense of awe and wisdom and, and wonder that these women with all of their own pain and brokenness, have experienced the power of the resurrected Jesus. That he is alive and he is working in them and through them. And so, yeah. Let me have the worship team come forward. When, when you are in the presence of wonder, really there's two responses, at least two responses. One is just silence. And one is singing, joy. And so I want to give us a moment to be silent in the presence of God. And maybe you want to offer to God your own pain and your own brokenness, your own dark places. And then we're going to close our time just singing in the response to that, that God is here. The risen Jesus is here through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he wants to meet you right where you're at in your own brokenness. So let's just pause for a moment. Let's just take in, maybe take a deep breath. We've received a lot. Just take a deep breath in and out. And let's just pause for a moment, and we'll just close our time with singing. I left. We have the Lord's table to my right, and we take the bread and the cup every week because it reminds us that out of the brokenness of Jesus, resurrection comes. So that's why we take his bread with the bread which represents his broken body, his, the cup which represents his poured out blood. And it is out of uh, that meal that we begin to experience not just the death of Jesus, but the resurrection of Jesus as well. Uh, these three women have been signs of grace and wonder to us today. And I love how Marie said it at the end, there is no darkness there's no place so dark that God cannot find you. And some of you in this room, um, you are in a place of darkness right now. Maybe deep brokenness, maybe deep pain, maybe for shame, as Fatima talked about, shame, not even to even talk about it. And you've been suffering in isolation. This is why we close every gathering with prayer, to let you know you don't have to be in darkness alone. That we are here as the people of God to journey with each other to experience a resurrection of Jesus that's available to us today. 
And so whatever uh, place of pain you're, you're at today, whatever darkness you're experiencing, uh, whatever trouble that's come your way, we want to end with, with prayer. And uh, our prayer team might anoint you with oil. Oil is a sign of God's presence and power on your life, that God is with you, that he's never left you. He said, I'll never leave you, nor will I forsake you. And you can come up to receive the bread and the cup as well. Uh, Kim, Marie, and Fatima will be downstairs in the lobby area. So if you want to give them a big hug and squeeze, and God's life and word came powerfully to us today through them. And so if you want to just say thank you, they'll be downstairs in the lobby area. As we close, I want to invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. We've already been blessed. This is my way of just commissioning you out that whatever you've received now, you offer it to the world around you. And so with your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May he shine his face upon you. May he fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that the grace of God is on you, that the love of God is for you, that the presence of Jesus is with you. And so I bless you all today in the strong, in the beautiful, in the resurrected name of Jesus. And the people of God said, Amen. Grace and peace, everyone.